Well, humor for the week, after that somber statement, this is a good one. Uh, This joke is in honor of Chuck Swindoll, and you'll see why. A man was walking along the beach one day when he found a bottle. He picked it up, rubbed it, and the proverbial genie came out. The genie said, I'm going to grant you three wishes. The man overjoyed said, I wish that there would be peace, enough food in the world to feed people. Many are starving to death. The genie replied, it's done. The man then said, I wish we could have peace on earth. There's so much war and conflict. The genie replied, it will be done. The man then said, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I'm afraid to fly. I wish you would build a bridge from Los Angeles to Hawaii. The genie replied, man, do you know what you're asking? Do you realize how much concrete and steel it would take to build a bridge from Los Angeles to Hawaii? Do you realize that the pilings and the bridge would mess up the ocean currents and would affect El Nino? Ask me something more reasonable. The man then replied, okay, I wish every preacher would quit preaching by 12 o'clock Sunday morning. The genie thought for a moment, he replied, how many lanes do you want in that bridge? (laughs) That's why it's for Chuck in the second service. Doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your outline before you, you'll notice that we are at Kepler C. Um, The decisions believers in Christ must make. There are three. Last Sunday we looked at two. That is, to renounce legalism and to renounce asceticism. And he's, he's here, obviously, talking about the blight of asceticism that was in, in the church at, at, uh, at Colossae. Because, remember, they were uh, dualists. Matter is evil. Therefore, don't touch, don't taste, don't even, I mean, don't handle, don't touch, don't even... Don't, don't even don't eat it, don't even touch it. Uh, rules that were um, ascetic. Asceticism means that you deprive yourself, your body, of anything that might be beneficial to the body. Um, it, it may be uh, celibacy. Now, I'm not saying that celibacy is wrong. Uh, for instance, uh, Dr. Abe Caravella, who often preaches when Chuck is gone in the summer. Uh, is a celibate. He's pledged himself to celibacy. Now he doesn't do that and say, oh, see how spiritual I am I'm depressed. No, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says the person that's single can dedicate himself to the work of the Lord more effectively than a person that's married. His, his, uh, his allegiance is divided, which is true, which is right. Uh, but he has committed himself to celibacy. But people sometimes become celibate as I see how righteous I am. They flagellate themselves. They deprive themselves of food and so on. One of the outstanding asceticism, one of the outstanding, I'm not following up, one of the outstanding ascetics of, of church history was a man named Simon Stylides. Simon Stylides, um, his name was really Simon Stylides, means kind of a pillar. Simon Stylides uh, built a pillar eight feet high with a platform 40 inches square. He raised it to 20 feet high 
lived on that. He spent the last 47 years of his life on that pillar. He subjected himself to the winters, the hot summers, without any covering, and he ultimately died on that platform. So people would say, oh, what a saint he is. In fact, three Catholic churches, uh, the denominations, the Roman Catholic Church, the Coptic Church, and the Greek Orthodox Church, have pronounced him to be a saint because he lived on a pillar. Now, Paul says, that doesn't uh, heal your sin nature a bit. It's absolutely useless. Now, very frankly, I don't think most Christians in the United States are afflicted with the problem of asceticism. We live good lives. We are not ascetics. But we are legalists. We are legalists. And that's a crucial, crucial issue. Now, there's an advantage in not quite finishing a lesson from a Sunday and taking it up the next Sunday morning because it's an opportunity for review and also driving home an application. Remember the application we had, which I had to go through rather quickly, had three points. Point number one is you are not under the Mosaic law. Christian after Christian is befuddled on that because theologians had divided the law of Moses into three divisions. Now, the the, the division is correct. There's the ceremonial law. All Bible students and theologians say we're dead to the ceremonial law. We died to the law, and that includes the ceremonial law. We don't bring sacrifices. We don't have the priesthood of Levi. The second aspect is civil law. The civil laws of uh, Israel by which they govern themselves. What should you do in a case of murder or stealing? It's a civil law. In fact, one of the questions that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks is, should we change our laws so that our government operates like Israel's government? Should we be like Israel? Well, what about that? We'll talk about that. But there's the civil law. Then thirdly, there's the moral law especially as it is embodied in the Ten Commandments. Now, there are moral commandments in the Old Testament besides the Ten Commandments, but they especially latch on to the Ten Commandments and say we died to the ceremonial law, the civil law, but not the Ten Commandments. We are under the moral law of Moses. Now, in Colossians, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, specifically mentioning the Sabbath indicates that he's talking about the law of Moses and food and drink, especially foods, abstain from certain foods. Now, he says, you're not under the law of Moses. Now, he hints at something very strong because he says, those are only a shadow. The reality is yet to come. But what he implies in Colossians is stated specifically in Romans chapter 7. I'd like to have you take your Bibles very quickly and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also are made to, to die to the law. You died to the law. What law? Well, it's very interesting Drop down to verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. 
On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not, had not said, Thou shalt not covet. Isn't that interesting? Thou shalt not covet is the 10th commandment. He says you died to the law. Then when he quotes from the law, what does he quote from? The 10 commandments. You're not under any part of the law, including the 10 commandments. Now here's the kicker. Here's the problem. In the Old Testament, you have 10 commandments. In the New Testament, you have nine of the 10 commandments repeated. The one that's not repeated is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Isn't that interesting? In fact, if you're under the Ten Commandments, we'd better start, or you'd better start worshiping on Saturday. Oh no, we worship on Sunday. We just transfer the laws of the Sabbath day to Sunday. You can't do that. We worship on Sunday because that's the practice of the early church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Paul is recorded to be in Troas for a week, seven days. <clears throat> And it specifically says, on the first day of the week, when the church came together to break bread. Now, the reason we worship on Sunday is because that was the apostolic practice. And that's the day the Lord uh, was resurrected. Excuse me. I'm sorry. That's the day the Lord was resurrected. I'm sorry, folks. I've got Hillary's disease. That's the day the Lord was, re- was resurrected from the dead. But you say, wait, 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 wait. If 10 commandments are given in the Old Testament and nine of them are repeated in the New Testament, why don't you just say we're under nine of the 10 commandments? Mm. Those are two entirely different systems. As you all very well know, I grew up in Minnesota. And in 1951, Max and I moved down to Texas. Now, in Minnesota, it was against the law to murder. In Texas, it's against the law to murder. In Minnesota, it was against the law to steal. In Texas, it's against the law to steal. In Minnesota, it's against the law to commit perjury. In Texas, it's against the law to commit perjury. But they're different systems. Similarity does not prove identity. Well, there are different laws in Minnesota. For instance, in Minnesota, there's a state income tax. Praise God, in Texas, there's not a state income tax. There are two different systems. The law of Moses is one system, and the grace of the New Testament is another system. What's the difference? Well, there are many differences. Let me give the big one. Under the law, there are laws, no enablement. You're told to do something and you're left on your own. Paul said that explicitly in Romans 8, 2. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. No enablement. In the New Testament, you have the laws. There's the enablement of God the Holy Spirit. Two entirely different systems. So don't put yourself under the law. If somebody tries to bring up the Ten Commandments and say you're under the Ten Commandments, no, I'm not. Take Romans chapter 7 to prove it. You're not under the law. The second thing we looked at very quickly last Sunday was legalism. Remember, I started the class with the concept that I'd taught one time that Christians should not uh, be in movies that are X or R-rated 
films if they are sexually explicit. And I was accused of being a legalist for preaching that. Could that be legalism? Yes. Could obedience to the laws or the commandments of the New Testament be legalism? Yes. It can be legalism. What is legalism? We pointed this out very quickly, and we said there are five points. Very important. I did a lot of thinking on this. First of all, there's no grace. Under legalism, no thought of grace. Secondly, under legalism, there is, there is a, no thought of faith. Those two go together, by the way, faith and grace. There's no thought of that under legalism. Under legalism, number three, you're on your own. You do this on your own. You just grit your teeth and do it on your own. Number four, it leads to self-righteousness. See how righteous I am? And finally, fifthly, it always leads to criticism of other people, judging of other people. And we looked very quickly at Luke 18. A wonderful parable the Lord told about two people who prayed. One was a Pharisee. And the Lord, very interestingly, he said, went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee prayed to himself. <laughs> he's just talking to himself while he's on his own. Secondly, he's self-righteous. See how righteous I am? I fast twice a week. I tithe of all that I get. And leaves a judgment. I thank you that I'm not that lot like other people. And he lists his sins then. Especially, especially this tax collector. The second person was the tax collector. He would not even lift his face to heaven. He bowed his head. And I think that may be one reason why we bow our heads. There's nothing wrong with lifting your face to heaven. But he wouldn't even do that. He bowed his face, bowed his head. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. No self-righteousness. No dependency on self. Simply, simply grace. Be merciful to me. Simply, simply faith. Be merciful to me, the sinner. It's grace and faith. You can be a legalist. And in obeying a law, do it on your own. Become self-righteous and criticize others. It's your attitude. It's a matter of simple grace and faith. When I said, you who are Christians, please don't frequent films that are X-rated, R-rated, are sexually explicit. If you will, just turn back a page or two in your Bibles and look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if any, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That's what that's about. Or if you want to be more explicit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, flee fornication. And that's not fleeing fornication. So the first thing we made, you're not under the law, the law of Moses. Secondly, we talked, about, uh, we talked about what legalism is about. And thirdly, we said, 
the method of justification always determines the method of sanctification. You don't hear that very often. How you're saved determines how you live as a Christian. How are you saved? By grace through faith. How do you live the Christian life? By grace through faith. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians, in Galatians chapter 3. He says to the Galatians, how are you saved? Was it by the hearing of the law or by believing in faith? Was it by believing in faith? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by listening to the works of the law or doing the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? By the hearing of faith. You are saved one way and you're sanctified the same way. That's why you don't leave. Uh, that's why you must leave, I should say, asceticism and legalism. Which brings us to the point where we are now. We must mock Schnell. So the number three is to focus on the risen Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ. We're talking about the condition. Notice the word then. If then. It literally is the word therefore. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ. Now why does he say therefore? He's looking back at the preceding chapter. In fact, he's emphasizing chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 of chapter 2. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, everybody agrees the circumcision of Christ so it looks at the death of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of, of, uh, of God who raised him from the dead. Now, the baptism here is not water baptism. I wish it would do that, but it doesn't. The word baptize does mean to dip or immerse. That's the first meaning. But we saw that there's a secondary meaning, which is to identify with. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, where the children of Israel were baptized unto Moses by the cloud and by the sea. The cloud was a cloud of smoke and fire. And it separated the Egyptian army from the Israelites. So they were joined to Moses by the cloud and by the sea. The sea closed in upon the Egyptians and they couldn't even go back to Egypt. They were now joined to Moses. And that's the point here is, you were joined to Christ. When you trusted in Christ, you had spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. You're joined into Christ. So Paul says this, when you trusted in Christ, you were put into Christ. Now here's the cross, right in the middle. Remember we said this before? On this side, your old life, and this side, your new life. When you trusted in Christ, you're looked upon as being in Christ. I know we're living in 2017, but let's suppose you're saved in the year 2010. In the year 2010, you trusted in Christ. At that point, God took you and put you into Christ. And you looked upon, uh, upon Christ as being in him. So that when he died, you died. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected. More than that, folks. When he was resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And you are in Christ at the right hand of God the Father. You're exalted with him. So that chapter 3, verse 1, is looking at that great truth. Dead, buried, resurrected ascended to the right hand of the Father. He says, if therefore, the if is a first class condition, it's assumed to be true, and here it is. 
we could translate that since. Since, therefore, you've been raised up with Christ. So the condition is you're raised up, you're resurrected with Christ, you're now on this side of the cross. Get that in your mind. You're raised up with Christ and you're at the hand of the Father. That's the condition. Now the commands, there are two. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking, seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So the raised up doesn't just mean resurrected. You are at the right hand of God in Christ. Keep seeking that. No, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? You look for it? You look for it? No, you don't look for it. I know the word seek does have that meaning. For instance, in Luke 15, when you have the wonderful story of the, of the lady that lost one of her ten coins. And she cleaned that house like she'd never cleaned it before. And it says she was seeking for the coin, and she found it. It doesn't have the idea of looking for it in this passage. It does have that many elsewhere. But here it means to put an emphasis on. Put an emphasis on the things above where Christ is. Make that an accent of your life. That's what you have when it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. It doesn't mean you look for it. Put a stress in your life on God's kingdom. The kingdom was being announced as a hand. Seek, emphasize the kingdom of God in your lives. That's what he is saying. Emphasize that. So likewise here, in your heart and in your mind, you set this as a priority in your life. The things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Make that the emphasis of your life. He says basically the same thing in verse 2, the second command. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Such a mind has the idea of um, make this your outlook. Make this a viewpoint that you have. Step back again a couple of pages in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, very interesting. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 5 is translated this way. Have this attitude in yourselves. That's the same verb. Have this kind of an outlook. Make this to be the perspective, the attitude that you have in life. So in chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above. Just constantly have this as an outlook, the things that are above. Not, not, Things that are on the earth. Oops. Not, well, hmm, that means I don't have to pay my income taxes. I don't have to pay um, uh, insurance. I don't have to, uh, I don't have to maintain my house. Uh, don't, don't do that. No, that's not what it's saying. You must understand that in the Bible it sometimes says, don't do this, but do this. Or do this, but not this. When you have that, watch out. When it says do this, but not this, it doesn't always mean not this totally. For instance, in Matthew 6, 19, uh, where he, he very carefully says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and so on. Don't lay up treasures on this earth. No IRAs. 
If you're self-employed, no SEP accounts, no insurance, no savings account, if you take that literally. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a normal practice. He says, children do not treasure up for their parents, but parents do treasure up for their children. In fact, it's very explicit, Proverbs 13, 22. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Good night. That's a lot of money. I could leave $2 million to each of our boys. Man, they could go through that in, in a lifetime. That's a lot of money. That's not, it's saying that, of course, you leave, leave an inheritance. But it's saying this. You teach your children how to handle money so well that when you die, your children will get it, and they will have the concept of how to handle money, and your grandchildren will get it. You can't go beyond that. So leave an inheritance to your children's children by training your children how to have money. But that involves treasuring up money. Now, he, the Lord is saying, don't put your emphasis on earthly treasures. Use your money for heavenly gain. Use your money to treasure up things in heaven. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Now he's saying the same thing here. Set your heavy affection on things above, not on things that are on this earth. And I collapse under that commandment. Why do I collapse? Oh, I'm thinking about paying the insurance, I'm thinking about paying taxes, I'm thinking about maintaining the house, is the lawn mowed, how about the car? I'm thinking about these things all the time. I spend so much time thinking about that that I don't really set my affections on things above. I need to put much more emphasis in my thinking. For as you think, you act. As you act, you become. So put a great emphasis on Christ and the things that are above. Well, I must move on. Now, the reason, chapter 3, verse 3. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're dead. The cross, he's talking about you died in Christ, you're raised, you're at the right hand of the Father, you died with Christ in God. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's turned around. I would have said, you died in Christ with God. That's not what he says. You died with Christ in God. And your life is hidden. That has the idea of security. Nobody can touch it. It's hidden. And it's with Christ, who in turn is in God. When you have that expression, in God, Look for security. Many illustrations of this. For instance, in First and Second Thessalonians, both books, Paul begins by saying, the church of the Thessalonians in God. Now, why would he say that? Because the church at Thessalonica was under persecution. And he wants to remind them that they're secure. It's the church of the Thessalonians in God. It's the opposite when he writes to the, to the Corinthians. He says, the church of God at Corinth. <laughs> why does he say that? The church of God in Corinth. You know why he says that? 
because the Corinthians were proud. And the Corinthians need to be reminded that they were God's church, not, not their church. The church of the Thessalonians, the church of God in Corinth. But in God has the idea of security. So that here you have double security. I can't help but think of, of, of John chapter 10, verses 27 and 29. No one is able to pluck them out of my hand. And no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It's security. It's a double clasp. I love that. I love that. I know there are people who struggle with the problem of the security of the believer. I went through that struggle, so I'm very, very sympathetic. There are a number of passages that convince me of this. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, whom he foreknew, he foreordained, whom he foreordained, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he will glorify. No seepage. But the one that really encouraged me was Ephesians 4.30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you're sealed unto the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Spirit? By sin. By sin. And yet it says in that same passage, by whom you're sealed on the day of redemption. Nobody can touch you. So even though you sin, you're sealed. We all sin. Nobody lives a perfect life. And we grieve the Holy Spirit by that sin. By the way, that shows the Holy Spirit is a person, not an influence. You don't grieve an influence. It also shows that the Holy Spirit loves us. You grieve somebody who loves you. Parents here are grieving over their children. Why? Their children are not walking with the Lord. And they love those kids. They love their children. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed on the day of redemption. Their security. And that's what he is saying here. The condition is you are, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's why... Uh, that's why he says that that's why you have the consequence of being secure. Finally, the revelation, verses, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, the time, the Greek literally says, whenever, whenever Christ is revealed, we don't know when it's going to be. Whenever Christ, who's our life? Why? Because you've gone through the cross. You're on the resurrected side. Side when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. It's interesting. That's not the word for revelation. It literally means is manifested. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested to see what He really is or who He really is, the subjects. Well, that's us. Then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. The same word. May I just say very quickly that when you talk about the book of Revelation, it's a different word, by the way, apocalypsis. It's, a, it, 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 it's the book of the Revelation. It's not Revelations. Person after person, it's the, I wish you'd teach on the book of the Revelations. It, no, it's one revelation. It's a revelation of who Christ is, the whole book. But here, we're going to be revealed with Christ. That's what it says. We'll be revealed with him in glory. Now hear me. When the rapture occurs, there's no manifestation of who we are. There's no revelation of who Christ is. It's going to be now 
twinkly of an eye, just faster than you can blink. Big, big. We're going to be raptured. I mean, you're here. Next split second, you're gone. There's no revelation of who you are. There's no revelation of Christ. That's the rapture and the resurrection of the saints. But about seven years later, Christ is going to return. Then there will be a revelation of who he is. Slip over, if you will, to the book of Revelation. Now, Revelations, Revelation, chapter 19. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are as a flame of fire, and so on. Drop down, if you will, uh, if you will, verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who's that army? Well, drop back to Revelation 19, verse 17. Uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. What's the army? Or the those are clothed with that white, bright linen. That's the bride of Christ. And we're following him. He is going to come in great glory and just decimate his enemies. He'll be manifested for who he is. And at that time, we'll be manifested with him. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. We're going to be seen for who we are because we'll be in Christ. And in Christ, we follow him. We participate in the glory. And finally, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, it says, in glory. It says, you also will reveal with him in glory. That's a wonderful word, in glory. Uh, as I've, I've used this illustration before, but many years ago, Max and I worked with young people. And for our high school group, we'd have weekend retreats. We'd have a special speaker in, and the, the students, or the high schoolers, favorite speaker was Charles Ryrie. He was a bachelor at the time, and uh, he, 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 the, the students just loved him. The high schoolers just loved him. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard Ryrie speak. Um, he doesn't have a lovely baritone voice like Jerry Dellison. It's kind of a high-pitched. And when he speaks, he's not that animated. It's just more of a, almost like a lecture. And you say, well, why would the students love to hear, have him? Every time I'd ask, whom do you want me to get? Charles Ryrie, Dr. Ryrie. And I think there are two reasons. Number one, he loved those kids. And the kids knew it. They responded to that, which was a tremendous lesson. You'd think that a youth worker's got to be some glad hand. Not necessarily. If he loves those people, they'll respond. And the second thing is, he was clear as crystal. Even though he spoke in this voice and so on, he was clear as crystal. You couldn't miss what he was saying. And one time he was talking to high schoolers, our high schoolers, on the subject of the glory of God. Now, can you imagine teenagers listening to an esoteric subject like the glory of God 
from a world-class theologian, but he had them in the, in the palm of his hand. And he gave a definition of the glory of God more than 60 years ago. I've never forgotten. He says, the glory of God is anything that makes God seen, S-E-E-N. The glory of God is anything that reveals what God is like. You see a snow-capped ridge of mountains, and you just marvel at the power of God to take rock and thrust it thousands of feet into the air. Mm. The power of God. You stand by an ocean, boundless, boundless in depth, boundless in extent, and you think of how great and infinite God is. You see a newborn baby, mm, the genius of God. It, it, when anything that shows what God is like reveals his glory. Now we're going to be revealed with him in his glory when he comes in all of its majestic, majestic, wonderful glory. So there we have it. Verses 1 to 4, chapter 3. That ends a whole section of the book. We'll start a new section when we finish our question and answer. The question we always ask then is, so what? Did you notice in these four verses, there are four words that are repeated. I mean, excuse me, there's one word that is repeated four times. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4. When Christ Four times over in four verses is Christ, 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 Christ. What's the point? The point is you dwell on Christ. And you think upon Christ. More than that, you make Christ the hardcore center of your lives. You make a commitment to serve the Lord. Chuck Swindle has written these words. The following letter was written by a young communist to his girlfriend, breaking off the relationship with her because of his devotion to the communist cause. The letter was given to her pastor, who in turn sent it to Billy Graham. He published it, and here's the letter. We communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the, the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for a definite purpose in life. 
we subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our present lives seem hard or our, ego, or our egos, egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us, in his small way, is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am in dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens, as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to the force which both, both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause. And by their attitude toward it, I've already been in jail because of my ideals. If necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. <sighs> now that's commitment. By the way, did you notice when it says, keep on seeking, keep on dwelling? It's a lifestyle you have never attained. We have never got it. There must be a constant, continual commitment to Christ, day by day. That's why Christ says, take up your cross daily. Taking up a cross means commitment to the point of dying for it. That's what this is saying. It's Christ, 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 Christ. For me to live is Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what this is about, folks. We're not playing, playing tiddlywinks. We are in a war. We are strangers and sojourners on this earth. There must be a commitment to Christ. And that begins by saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. I recognize I'm lost. And Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you to save me. Dead, buried, resurrected to walk in newness of life. Father God, we thank you for this profound, profound passage. Beyond our comprehension and above our ability, we thrust ourselves on you, Father, so that by your Spirit we may indeed be dwelling on things above and making this the hardcore center of our lives. I pray for those who are here who have never trusted Christ and ask that right now they may turn to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm trusting you. Watch over us this week, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.